Hi, and welcome. You're listening to Tried and True, the Assay podcast. We're a new co-production from Assay Journal of Nonfiction Studies and the Missouri Audio Project. Assay Journal aims to bring new and underrepresented voices from the Academy and beyond. I'm your host, Paul Zakshevsky. In this episode, I'm excited to be speaking with the authors Yvette Johnson and Taylor Brorby. Yvette Johnson is a writer, film producer, and speaker. She co-produced the documentary Booker's Place, A Mississippi Story, and she's also the author of a memoir, The Song and the Silence. Taylor Brorby is an essayist, poet, and environmentalist. He's a teaching fellow in creative writing at Hobart and William Smith College, and he's also the author of a forthcoming memoir from Milkwood Editions. Our conversation was taped last November at the Nonfiction Now conference in Phoenix, where both Yvette and Taylor had appeared on separate panels about the Me Too movement and toxic masculinity. Midway through our conversation, you'll hear excerpts from these panels. I started off our interview by asking Yvette to tell me a bit more about her work. My book is called The Song and the Silence, a story about family, race, and what was revealed in a small town in the Mississippi Delta while searching for Booker Wright. So I was trying to win the title for longest book title. Um, But uh, it's the story I tell people often that it's part memoir, part narrative nonfiction. It's about my search to understand the history of people of color in our country and to understand, if possible, the origins of some of the problems that continue to plague people of color in our country and also to sort of understand what was the genesis of the mistreatment. You know, what is it in an individual that can allow them to, on the one hand, feed the homeless, love their children, volunteer, and on the other hand, to show such unkindness towards an entire people group, to strip those individuals of their humanity. So it was important to me to spend a lot of time um, with white Mississippians who had you know, previously been segregationists and to sort of understand who they were, how they came to be that way, and for my own healing to find something beautiful in each and every one of them. So Taylor, I'd ask you the same question. Can you tell us a bit about your life and your work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I grew up you know, gay in Western North Dakota, and most of my work deals with that region. It's uh, many people can't name many North Dakota writers. You know, we have Louise Erdrich, which is great, you know, but after that, we're like, wait, who else is there? So there's a lot of room on the bookshelf, and part of my job, I believe, or responsibility is to highlight how beautiful of a place this is, how fragile it is, how harsh it is. It's also a place that's plagued by extractive economies. So my work really deals with the oil boom right now. My entire family works in the fossil fuel industry and somehow they got a uh, you know, pink sheep, crunchy granola environmentalist out of the deal. Uh, and so so it, it's dealing with history and the myth of the American West, because like I said in my reading, you know, I grew up 10 miles from where Lewis and Clark spent more time on their Western journey than any other place, a half hour north of Fort Abraham Lincoln, where Custer lived 100 miles east of where Teddy Roosevelt, you know, lived when his wife and mother died on the same day. And part of that, I think, is is similar to what you were saying about that 
sorry, excavation of history. I think that's so, it's always important. It's never not been. And stories that are rooted to history, I think just help us maybe not see clearly, but a little clearer about what has been at work. So that's sort of where my work is right now is sort of the that bioregion. I could not agree with what you're saying, Taylor, more. You know, I think about um, the South and there are so many ideas and notions about the South. And one of the things that I've thought for many years now since I began doing this research um, is that we harm ourselves when we tell a lie that somehow people in certain states are just somehow different, that they're ignorant, that race is a is a problem that only occurs in the South. And, you know, um, um, Howard Zinn wrote a book called um, The Southern Mystique, and in it he talks about how the South is like a mirror and that it magnifies the imperfections of the nation. And, you know, I really think that this idea that um, you know, you just, you, you shut the book on all those problems. And really it wasn't just racism. I mean, so much of it really also had to do with, um, you know, a black man being called boy by a white child, you know, and what that does to his own masculinity in this nation where we, again, have these myths about what it means to be a man. And, you know, these black women who are raped regularly and for white men to feel at peace with it, they tell themselves, well, these black women are loose, they're floozies. And those stereotypes bleed into the rest of the nation. So, um, but I, I think we sometimes do ourselves a disservice by not understanding our history, but also by thinking that the people who participated in the aspects of history that bring us shame were somehow less than us, because it's just not true. Right. I, I'm thinking about this so much right now of, you know, the Missouri River is dammed and there's these series of reservoirs, one of which we had a, a trailer house that was our lake house growing up and I did not know because, of course, if you're not taught this in school and people don't read books to you about this, that where the Missouri River was uh, dammed in my home state was to intentionally flood the river bottom agricultural lands of the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara. You know, and this is of course in the now, we also have in the history of the Standing Rock protest that was happening there too. And the intentional, intentional racism of my home state that I don't think people are exploring too much or too often, especially there. And that bleeds in, I think that's such a, that's the right word, it just bleeds into how we talk about things, about who the haves and have-nots are, how we don't see people as people. And at least where I come from, that's so rooted to a male perspective of a, of a landscape that needs to be filled up. It's the dream of the American progress, right? You go west, and it has very real implications that leave a sort of eerie silence in certain circles. I think that's kind of the work we're trying to do, right? We're trying to not fall into silence. Right. Hopefully, we're trying to find voices instead of the voice and to complicate our understanding. And I love what you're saying about the privilege of history is we get to think that we're so enlightened. Right. We get to forget. are the one out of the five? Yeah. Yeah. Who are the two out of the ten? 
even my classrooms or conferences, conferences like this. Who are the three out of the 15? I was dying to know who else beside me because I knew, I knew they were there. And I knew that one out of five figure was bullshit too because it's the most underreported, rape is the most underreported crime. And I certainly didn't report it. So I just played a clip from the Me Too to Memoir panel. And uh, so, Yvette, I wanted to ask you, I was really struck uh, when you spoke on that panel. Um, You used this term, battered women syndrome, that was big in the 70s and 80s. And uh, used it in the context of uh, America and how this country has related to African Americans and racism. And I was just really struck by that intersection between uh, race and Me Too. And uh, so I wanted to ask you about it. I wonder if you could comment on that more. Yeah, I mean, I think personally, I think sometimes um, I look back on on myself before I was quote unquote woke, although I, you know, (laughs) but. I think sometimes I think of myself sometimes as a woman who was married to a nation that was really like an abusive husband, and you know to live in a society where you are not considered important, where your ideas are considered to be less, where you're considered to not be as strong, and you really aren't as physically strong. You know you're living in you really do live in some in a sense of danger at. at in many ways, I mean, as a runner or going to a parking lot, at, you know, at, in the evening, it's a really different experience of just living day in, day out when you're a female in, in this nation. But there are so many things, especially in the 80s and 90s, that women would talk about that just went unvalidated. No one believed you. People thought it was in your head or you're exaggerating. And so to navigate in society, you either had to become an activist and constantly spout out your truth or you had to kind of say, maybe they're right. Maybe it is just in my head. Maybe my husband beat me because I was insensitive and I made him angry. You know, those are sort of the lies that, you know, women who potentially had battered women's syndrome were saying to themselves. And in many ways, I would tell myself similar lies, um, convincing myself that somehow I was less. Maybe it was my fault. Maybe I wasn't as smart as that colleague who. Um, used to be my assistant and is now replacing me and makes 10,000 more a year than I was making in the same position. Um, so. Let's hear some volunteers. What are some adjectives we can use to describe toxic masculinity in writers in the writing community? Yes. Rigid. Rigid. What other adjectives do we come up with? Yes. Shallow and pedantic. Rigid, shallow, pedantic. We're already off to a great start. Combative. Combative. Excellent. Yes. Clueless. Clueless. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes, sir. No. They don't see women. Don't see women. Excellent. Mansplaining. Mansplaining. What is that? <laughs> so, um, by the same token, Taylor, um, you know, I'm really struck by the title of, of the panel that you're going to be on uh, and the subject of toxic masculinity, which is the other side of the equation, of course, that uh, Yvette is talking about. I'm wondering what, um, what kind of interested you in being in that panel and what's your relationship to the subject? Yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of one of those things I think about as a, as a white male, too, relating it to race as well of 
you know, when I go through trainings or when you sort of talk to, you know, if I go home to Thanksgiving, uh, it's one of those things where I think the panel I'm on is also trying to say men need to catch up to women and women don't have to be doing all of the emotional labor that men should really be in circles with other men, educating, calling people to account, uh, informing. It's the, it's the training I've had to go through in other aspects of my life that just sort of go, oh, the people who are in places where this abuse has happened shouldn't have to be put in, in this same position to be a broken record, you know, and say, oh my God, white people never get this, men never get this, you know, and I think that's what so interested me in this panel when Clint proposed it, Clinton Crockett Peters, was just that, yeah, men need to show up. Well, you, you mentioned trainings. Can I ask yeah. what, what, you, what you're referring to? What types yeah. of, have you come to this, this amazing perspective? Yeah, well, I, you know, when you grow up, a, you know, a pink little sheep on the Northern Great Plains, you just kind of like watch things. And with, keep... with blue eyes too, I have yeah. to say. I know uh, this is a you. podcast, yeah. but right. yes. Yeah, right. very... You definitely right. have that sort of white male, you know, <laughs> right. yes, I can. Yeah. yeah, the Nordic side is very strong. I'm going to walk in into my... a room yes. and get the best table. Right. No, yeah. I mean, but that's, again, it's a stereotype, right. it and is. I know it's not true, but yes. You... But, but it's one of those things where I think when you grow up in a certain place, in a certain way, you keep things to yourself and you watch, and it's not like I became like little Buddha Taylor Brorby but that I think, I hope, I was more open already by disposition, and that when I've gone through uh, trainings that, for my students, you know, how to really know even how to speak about things of a student who might, uh, like last year, for instance, I was the first person a student of mine told that she had had an abortion, you know, and how to um, hold that trainings around race, around uh, class issues, dealing with first, I'm a first gen college student, but trainings like that of also just understanding how to begin at a place of openness, attentiveness, empathy, and not denial. I think that's, that's what we're talking about a little bit too of, here, of saying, I don't believe you, but does the world move two inches if we begin and say, I'm open to this story? I'm open to your story. That's, that's what is behind this, I think, for me. Okay, everyday women are killed, raped, unable to move about freely without fear of violence. Everyday women are living crippled lives because of what happened to them for decades. It breaks their bodies, their minds, and their spirit for the rest of their lives. And we need to hear it. We need it saturated in essays, in books, in online posts saying, me too, me too, me too until it becomes impossible to look away, to diminish, disbelieve, deny, and deny justice. Well, you know what's interesting? I tend to, to take this topic definitely as, as a woman who has had her own experiences and who has sisters and best friends who've had horrible experiences of assault and you know I've been sexually harassed on the job and just sort of took it and tried to figure out how to navigate it and thought it would you know that's just what you get 
but I'm also the mother of boys. And I remember when um, my son was maybe 10 years old, he said, Mommy, how come my Winky gets excited when I see a woman's chest, <laughs> you know? And, and one of the things I've begun to notice, because I homeschool and I'm with my kids sometimes all day long, you know, I'll notice them being more aware of things I'm wearing, when I'm wearing a bra, when I'm not wearing a bra. And it dawned on me that I never really understood how much the opposite sex is going to notice. Now I live in Arizona, it is hot, I like to run. Sometimes I'm wearing, you know, very little, not you know, only because I don't want to die, you know, yeah. I don't want to pass out <laughs> right. while I'm running. Right. You know, people are honking their horns at you and, and I'm not gonna change my practice. But it dawned on me that for my sons, I, I thought two things, I thought one, they, they need to understand that their experience of intimacy is very different than the average woman's experience of intimacy. You know, a, a therapist said to me once that a man can have sex with a, with a door, you know, right. like, you know, but a woman wants to know, well, did the door help me today? And what's he, th you know, and, um, and, and, I, and I do think sometimes there's this idea, even as I think on college campuses of like, what's the big deal? You know, my, my member isn't inside of you anymore. You know, it's like, well, I borrowed your purse, but now you've got it back. What's the big deal? You know, as if your vagina is a purse somehow, you know, and just trying to help my sons understand, like, you might have a desire or an intense, there might be just this moment where you feel like you're going to lose your mind if you don't have this thing. And the girl you're with might not be able to understand that. I mean, I have to say, I'm in my 40s. And you know, what they say is true, you do sort of have this sexual awakening. And I'm like, now I get it, you know, but I mean, but but really even trying to talk, and this is my personality, I'm always trying to drill down to the bottom, you know, and, and not just assume that, you know, men are savages, but maybe there isn't an, is an experience of just intense desire and intense Intense noticing of the female body that I'm not aware of. Now it doesn't give them an excuse, but it might open up space to talk about coping skills. What do you do when you're in that moment? How do you keep yourself from that moment? If you're going to a club, do you privately pleasure yourself before so that you're less likely to be tempted to be aggressive? You know, things like this, but also really making sure that boys and men understand that women who 30 years later are still talking about an assault, it's not because they're holding on and won't get over it, it's because they're made differently than you, and it truly has informed their entire life. So. I'm, I'm so glad that both of you just said what you did, and, and a question that it raises for me that I've been wrestling with is um, just the fact that since all the Me Too revelations came out like over a year ago with Harvey Weinstein, I can literally count on one hand the number of men who at least published responses to it. I can think of a couple of them right. that stand out for me. And I guess I'm wondering if either of you or both of you have thoughts about why that is, does it matter, and what can we do to get men more engaged? And is it even our job? Is it your job? Or Taylor, is it your job? Yeah, I mean, I've been working on this other book right now that I never really intended to write a, a second memoir. My God, it's just wild. But, um, and it was about a topic I know, I mean, I find being gay sort of the least interesting thing about me. And, but it's about growing up gay on the Northern Great Plains. But what I learned just literally this, in the last year and a half, um, that an uncle of mine molested two of his sisters when uh, he was like a senior in high school. And then what I learned this July, just literally, what is that, four months ago now, 
three of my aunts, including these two that were molested, placed sons for adoption. I had no clue I had three cousins. I had made it to 30. My sister called me one night. You know, and and so I don't know the nature. I mean, they weren't with my uncles. These were had out of wedlock. And, you know, I think I'm an empathetic, caring man. But to be quite frank, I was always like, what's this stuff about being triggered? Like, I understand that things are uncomfortable. But, you know, when you, an intellectual idea that hasn't yet landed for you, or at least for me, is always, I'm suspicious. Like, what does that mean? You know, like, I have things that have happened that I didn't like. No, what happened for me, since I was working on this book, I mean, I literally produced a draft of this in eight days, like a 300-page book. It just piled out of me. And this is during the Brett Kavanaugh thing. And then I felt it. Like, I was triggered by that because I had been thinking about these three aunts and not knowing were they in relationships that they were hoping were going forward. Was it a one-night stand? Was it coercion? Was it rape? Uh, was it a multitude of those things? And since it had been so live on my brain, I just, it just undid me, you know? And I think in, in this type of book I'm now working on, that has to be in there, you know? And it ha I think part of my suspicion, I think we also need to be honest about our biases. Like for me to say, it literally, maybe it would have come in a different way. It took me now knowing this about my aunts and then the appointment of a Supreme Court justice to become more empathetic, to say like, slow your roll, believe, listen, understand that people are different from you and have had different experiences and they met. And I, I intellectually know these things, you know, but then you're just sort of like, dummy, wake up. And I think men need to be open and frank about that, of saying, oh my God, I have changed in some way, and I used to be this way. I, I just have to believe we need men writing about this. It's not a scarcity model of taking away from women. It's pumping up the conversation. It's expanding it. I just think there's this real fear of if I say the wrong thing or I phrase something in a way, and we live in a heightened state of that right now, right? I think everyone's a little on pins and needles here, and I think we have to lean into that. And I think we have to do that with grace and understanding and saying, yep, we're educating, we're bringing, we're bringing people closer together on some level. Um, I don't have the right metaphor. I, I love what you just shared, and I think it was so insightful of you. you. You said that sometimes you'll have an intellectual idea that hasn't really landed for you personally and that you can feel suspicious of it. But then later you said, well, of course I know that everyone has different experiences. And, and I think it's, it's so true. So often we go through life and we wear our convictions on our sleeve, but we're not, all, we're not necessarily wearing them you know, on all of our garments. <laughs> you know, We're not really right. wearing them in every situation that we're in in life. And, and so of course we can think, yes, I'm a person who believes people should be able to choose what they want. But then sometimes when you're, you're faced with the reality of what that means, it can be difficult to live out what we actually believe in. And I couldn't agree more about having these conversations with grace and understanding. I think that you have to 
begin there. And I think that they need to be undergirded with grace and understanding. And and in terms of whose responsibility is it to bring men in, I, I think that my responsibility and I think Taylor's responsibility are to be able to talk about these things in a way that don't discourage men from participating. Um, you know, that we're not trying to indict manhood and we're not trying to take away a man's right to this or that. And I can remember having a conversation with a, a male friend of mine right sort of when this was all blowing up. And and I said to him, you know, how are we going to meet people? Sometimes I'm in a restaurant and the waiter's really good looking and I might look over at a girlfriend and say, I want to climb that like a tree, you know. <laughs> but because I'm not physically stronger than him, it doesn't sound threatening. So are we going to be in a place where women then have the right to say something because we tend to be the smaller sex that men then can't say? And are we going to have rules, you know, that are, and and no, we're not. But if you come at things with grace and understanding and talking and, um, but I, but I also think, you know, I, I can't really have this conversation without men. Sort of like what I was trying to say before, I've got to sort of understand, well, how did we get here? And, uh, you know, what does this look like in your life? You know, not necessarily asking people to out themselves, but, you know, help me understand the male experience. How might this be possible? It's not one or two guys going around assaulting all of these women and sexually harassing them all at work. I mean, it's definitely something that's happening in, you know, in in the male experience of what it means to be an American. For many men, of course not all. And just trying to sort of tease that out. How is that happening? So I think that we, you know, the beginning, yes, is to say this is happening. This is real. It's not one woman exaggerating. It's not someone misremembering or maybe she drank too much and the drinking too much meant that she wanted it. You know, it's or me outrunning in my, in my you know, shorts and a T-shirt so that I can stay cool isn't an invitation to an assault or sexuality. But having conversations with men to see why isn't that an obvious truth to you? To me, that's an obvious truth, that I'm not doing these things to invite your eyes, but that's not an obvious truth to you. Help me understand why. Not that I'm going to change my behavior, but it will inform how I talk to my sons. It'll inform how I talk to my male friends. Again, not with a spirit to indict or to accuse, but just to say we've got to build a better world for all of ourselves, for all of us. So I just um, want to thank you both again for a really wonderful conversation. Uh, Yvette, Taylor, thank you. Thank Thank you. You've been listening to Tried and True. I'm Paul Zekshevsky. Tried and True is a co-production from ASEI, the Journal of Nonfiction Studies, and the Missouri Audio Project. To find out more about ASEI, visit asseijournal.com follow us on Twitter and Facebook. See you next time. An MAP production based in Columbia, Missouri, supported by KBIA.